0: You know, in 2005, there was a series of books uh, written by C.S. Lewis uh, called The Chronicles of Narnia that came to the big screen. The books were written in the early 50s. They came to the big screen in 2005. And look, if you came in here today and you just bought The Chronicles of Narnia and are going to go home and watch that, I'm going to spoil it for you, okay? So just close your ears if you haven't seen a movie that's almost 20 years old. Well, it's more than—no, almost 20 years old. Uh, So this story revolves around four children, Edmund, Susan, uh, Lucy, and Peter. And the storyline goes that these four children stumble into this secret or like wardrobe closet. They leave this area where they live in London. They enter this wardrobe closet and they stumble into this enchanted land called Narnia. And in the land of Narnia, they learn that they're not just ordinary children, but rather they are kings and queens of the land. And the whole story and premises is, is the adventures of these children, kings and queens of this land. That's why all the books were written. Now, however, when they return to London, no one thinks of them as royalty, no one sees them as elite. They're just normal children, ordinary people. They're not highly respected nor seen differently. But for them, life is never the same again because they know their true identity. Kings and queens. Today, we consider a similar reality for those who of faith, those who believe. We, not by our own doing, not by our own efforts, and sometimes not even by our own knowledge, have become adopted sons and daughters of an eternal King, a King who is perfect in love, perfect in character, perfect in justice, and much like Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Once one comes to grips with their new identity, one's life can never be the same. And today we embrace this question, what if we really believe that we were children of a living God, not some sideshow or, or project that needs to be tamed? How would our lives be different? And so would you join me in reading from 1 John, starting in chapter 2 and verse 28? And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reasons why the world does not know us is that they did not know him, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but when we know, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God by this. It is evident who are the children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You know, John begins this part of his letter the same way that he started this letter of reminding us of the joys of fellowship with God. In the first chapter, in verses three and four, he says, that which have been seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Like Jesus, who John spent a whole lot of time with, John wants the church to experience true joy. He wants us to have true joy, which can only be found in Christ. And so John has set out in this letter to explain how we can have that joy. And what we have heard over and over in his teaching is that joy is only found in abiding relationship with God, with fellowship with God. But there's a caveat for us of faith. Fellowship with God can only be made complete by this term called righteousness, which means to be morally justified or declared uh, whole in front of a holy God, to have right standing in front of him. And John wants the followers of Jesus to understand that the priority of our lives must be fellowship with God. But we have to understand that God is righteous. And so in order to have fellowship with him, we too must be righteous as well. However, John knew that we often get focused on the very wrong things when we think about righteousness. We don't understand fully what God desires sometimes, so we simply just aim to be good and and count that as righteousness. We try to use better language. We try to uh, drink less. We try to gossip less. We try to smile at people we don't like. We focus on external things, but over and over, Scripture teaches us That what God really wants is a complete righteousness that transforms us from the inside. Yet when we hear that phrase, we have no idea what it means. And so we just settle on trying to continue to be good. And so listen, if you have faced that struggle like I have, if you have those kinds of thoughts, then today's passage is of great benefit to you. Righteousness doesn't come to us by the means of amputation. That by our own efforts that we look at, our moral sin, our junk, and we try to amputate it through the means, of our own effort to look good. But for the Christian, righteousness comes by the means of imputation. And imputation is this legal term that means getting something that somebody else deserves, getting something from somebody else. And for the Christian, the scholars would say that we have a double imputation. That our sin is imputed onto Christ, and therefore, Christ's righteousness is imputed onto us. And for you and I as the believer, that is where our righteousness comes from. So today, we really want to focus on that. We want to focus on the love that God has for us that has declared us children of God, and then to focus on what it means to practice righteousness. And so John wants us to understand how fellowship with God begins, how righteousness with God begins. And so in chapter 3, he zeroes in on our identity in Christ, that in Christ we have a different motivation in life. And so he says, see what kind of love that our Father has given to us. What kind of love is John talking about here? Because there are all sorts of kinds of love out there. What kind of love is this? Because we use love in reference to lots of things. I love my car. I love my cat, which I don't love cats. I don't understand that. I love my nail polish. I love my kids. I love my wife. There are so many different types of love. There's so many dimensions of love by what it's associated with. And there are all kinds of qualities of love. There's human love for one another. There's human love for things. There's a combination of human and divine love. And then there's pure divine love. And to help you understand what pure divine love is, I wanna show you what it means to have human and divine love together. The best way I can describe how those two things to go together is to share a story with you about a missionary named John Payton. John Payton was a missionary to a small South South Pacific island called New Hebrides. And early in John's life, he was just trying to decide where God wanted him to serve. And God led him into this notion of being in the mission field, and he began to think and pray about mission. He married his bride, this young girl. They became pregnant, and they planned their future together, and God called him. And he seemed to understand that God wanted him to go to a place called New Hebrides. Now, the thing about New Hebrides is that it's inhabited by man-eating cannibals. Which is really like, okay, God, where do you want me to go? Oh, cannibals, okay. <laughs> like, you don't anticipate that. And he said, well, Lord, if that's the way you want it, then I'll go. And so he packed up his wife just a few months. Recently pregnant. Got on the boat took off. The ship stopped some 200 feet from shore because they were not going on the island themselves. And they had to row themselves onto the shore of this island in their own little rowboat. Now, what do you do? What would you do if you arrived on an island full of man-eating cannibals? Nobody who's ever been invited to lunch there has come back. So what, you have a barbecue? That seems like a poor strategy. Do you put out a sign and say, VBS, we're doing VBS here, How do you approach that? You don't know the language. What do you do? Well, they proceeded to build a camp. They they put a little lean-to on the beach. They had set up this little simple camp. And then a couple days, they just sat there just trying to figure out what the Lord wanted them to do. They were just waiting on the Lord. And then all of a sudden, the natives started peering out behind the bush, around them. And they didn't do anything to them but watch them. How creepy is that? They just watched them. That had to be a petrifying experience. And at night, they would go around their lean-to. Think about a hungry bear, and then think about a man-eating cannibal coming around your tent. A very scary proposition. And so they're there for several months, and they never touch them. They just watch them. And John's wife gives birth to this beautiful baby boy. And then 19 later, she contracts a tropical disease and dies. And a week later, his baby son dies as well. And he said he was all alone. He said, I buried the bodies in the beach and I slept on them for three nights to keep the natives from digging them up. And he said, I was lonely beyond loneliness. And he said, I kept asking, why God, why? I mean, wouldn't we all? Peyton waited for the Lord to lead him And finally it happened just days after his son passed away. A native was kicked out of the tribe and he came in contact with John and John and him began to communicate in some really basic human language and he learned that this native had lost his son too recently. And pretty soon John introduced him to a God who lost his own son as well, who died for him. And that native became a believer. The tribe heard about it, and they came after John. But John had a native with him that could warn him. And this native hid him all over the place, all over the island, to keep this group of people from him. But he didn't stop there. The native preached Christ. He kept on preaching Christ, and other natives came to know Jesus. And pretty soon, there was a little group, and then a bigger group, It kept expanding, and pretty soon, it was a big group. John Payton stayed on that island for 35 years. 35 years. And when he was leaving the island, he said, when I came here, I heard the cries of cannibals. And as I leave, I hear the ringing of church bells. And he said, I do not know one single native that hasn't received Christ that takes an awful lot of love much more love than beyond our human capacity to love a people like that to stay after such tragedy to pour your life into that that's a supreme example of love isn't it that's infinitely sacrificial love that is a combination of human and divine love but grasp this even even better and more pure than that is the love of God for you and I. God loved so much that he bestowed adoption as sons and daughters onto us that we might become heirs, joint heirs with whom Christ to be called sons and daughters comes by the love of God. And what a love it is. It is a sacrificial love. Greater love hath no man than this, Jesus said that a man laid down his life for a friend. Paul writes of this in Ephesians 3. In verse 19 it says, And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's a love for us that is beyond our human capability of understanding, surpassing our knowledge. You remember the the Apostle Paul saying, what shall separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of God? And the ringing answer is nothing. Nothing, and that love has brought us salvation. God bestowed, gave his love to us, and yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We love him because while he first loved us, we can give it back. What a fantastic love that we have from our Father. And it's that love that makes us his children. And so look, I know myself pretty well, uh, and I'm not always the most lovable guy. No amens in this crowd, please. And God knows me better than anybody. And I'll tell you this, not only for me, but God loves every one of you, every man, woman, and child in this world with an infinite love. God loves so much that he paid the supreme price to give to you adoption as his son and daughter God's love calls us sons and daughter God loves you God made you he loved you when you didn't belong to him he loved you when you hated him he loved you when you didn't want him he loved you when you were unlovely and by faith we are called children of God a child denotes having a relationship with a given parent in a way that no one else has that relationship. There's a sense uh, in, in Scripture that all men and women are children of God in the sense that from the beginning are, we are offspring from God. That, that means that He created us. God created us. But Scripture is careful to differentiate that from a special relationship of sons and daughters of those who are faith in Christ, those who have put their hope in Christ. To be a child of God means that we've been given the very nature of God. In verse 9, it says that we are given the seed of God. It lives in us. That's similar to the holy DNA of God living in us when we place our faith in him. And so, friends, it's so important that you understand. You must understand your identity or you will never live the life that you were meant to live. You must understand your identity or you will never live the life that you were meant to live. We are children of God. We are not just people trying to be good. We don't have certain beliefs or go through certain rituals or ceremonies that are dictated by the church. We have become new creations. We have become transformed by Christ's righteousness. We have been purchased by God through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We have been adopted by the Almighty. Ephesians 2, 10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created anew in Christ Jesus, He has created us a new, new creation in Christ Jesus to do the good things that he planned out long ago for us to do. And so John's point, of course, is that the children of God, ambassadors of Christ, that our lives should look dramatically different and the focus of our lives should be on such a higher plane that the things of this world aren't even tempting. And so how does the... This biblical understanding of identity as children of God help us live righteously. And so if we look at this vision that God has placed before us, this understanding that we are his precious children who have an extraordinary purpose in our lives for the short time that we are here, we would stop worrying about our circumstances that happen to us on earth. Instead, we would focus on how he's shaping us in this life. But because we don't see ourselves as children of God, we far too often let our happenings and our circumstances affect us. They get us down. We don't relate those things to the whole. We don't put them in the right context. We, we live too much in the moment with the immediate in front of us instead of putting everything in the context of being a child of God, of being his beloved child. And so here's the thing that we need to catch Every appeal to good living and good behavior in Scripture is made in terms of our position in Christ. The Bible never asks you to do anything without first reminding you who you are. Never asks you to do anything without first reminding you who you are. And the key to the understanding of everything in the New Testament is to realize what Christ has done for us and what we are in him as a result of that work. And here's the thing, that identity is yours here, but it's not perfect. You live in the flesh, in this broken world. It will not be perfect until the king comes back someday, or you meet him in glory. And even though you are his child, you will still battle this flesh. Someday God will crush the unrighteousness, he will crush evil, he will establish his everlasting kingdom, And I hope that day comes soon. And then we will see who he is. A loving, glorious king, savior. But friends, in the meantime, as children, you are to become what you are. Become what you are. A royal breed. A royal breed, adopted sons and daughters of a king who loved you with a kind of love that you cannot even fathom. And that means that we are to practice righteousness, as John puts it, and to not be in the practice of sin, the habit of sin, in light of all that he has done, and how much that he has loved us, and how he has restored us, and we see his beauty. We would come to love his word, to love his way, to love his heart, to love his design, that we would come to desire him and nothing else, to abide in him and nothing else, John doesn't say that you can never sin or that you will never sin, but rather that you would not be in the habit of sinning. Because if you're in the habit of sin, how can you claim to know the righteousness of God if you're a slave to sin? If you're a slave to sin, you can't be a slave to righteousness. We are instead to be one who practices righteousness. And that simply means that we are to practice what we are already made new in Christ, that you would become who you really are. The one who practices righteousness is righteous the one who practices righteousness is the one who walks in the light acknowledges their sin confesses it and believes that the blood of jesus christ cleanses us from all sins it simply means that we return to the one that made us righteous we return to the one that made us righteous over and over again and say i don't want that lord i want you We return to the one that made us righteous, who reveals our shortcomings by his light that are not befitting of our true identity as children of him. That's the habit of a believer. It's not this veneer of perfection that we make it in culture, to look a certain way, but to walk in the light it's about confession, it's about cleansing. There will be evidence, not of fake purity, but of ongoing purification. There will be an openness, a lacking of pride, and a belief that righteousness is good and something to be hungered after. And I think the way that these words flow out of scripture, John compels to us that practice makes perfect, that there is an ongoing imperfection in us, but there is a progress of cleansing going on. If we consider a person who just picks up a violin for the first time, all they could simply muster would be squeaks and squawks. They could be so out of tune in their playing that would bring tears to your eyes. But if they're practicing and they're making progress, there isn't much more that you can expect. And once they've played for years and have become an accomplished virtuoso, do you not think that they practice even more? And so this word practice is right in front of us, front row center, practice righteousness. Because the issue in habitually being in sin isn't God's inability to forgive it. He can forgive it, but rather that the nature of sin itself destroys, kills, and decays. And if we are in the practice of sin without returning to the one who has made us righteous, the danger is that we forget our way back. That we forget our way back. Or worse than that, that we don't behold him or see his beauty, and we come to believe that confession and repentance is for somebody else. That's not for me. Being in the habit of sin blinds you from the beauty and the mercy of a loving father who delights in his children, And it exchanges it for a lie that says, my father's just oppressing me, and he's holding out on me. That's the very first lie that the enemy sowed into Eve, isn't it? And it's the same lie that he sows into us today. I just need to do me. To live my best life, instead of seeing the infinite and innate beauty of God in his law and his way and his heart and his design that serve as boundaries for the flourishing and safety of his children. Children he loves so much. And so in closing, let's remind ourselves of what John reveals to us here. John reminds us of an extravagant, divine love that is a kind of love that is our, outside of our capacity to understand, a love that's sacrificed to bestow upon us adoption as sons and daughters, and we are to live in light of that, not being concerned with the world, but concerned only with our true identity as sons and daughters of God, that we would become who we are by practicing righteousness and foregoing the habit of sin, that we might richly walk in the blessing and the flourishing that is offered by a just, holy, and loving Father to His children. Remember who you are, John says, and walk accordingly. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you um, for not just loving us, but for lavishing your love on us abundantly, immeasurably, undeniably. The most thing that we can be counted on in our life is your love for us in Jesus. Lord, the weather changes, people change, our economy changes hourly, our relationships, our jobs, our health are impacted by so many different variables. But your love for us is steadfast, impassioned, passionate, and joyful. And Father, as this scripture makes it clear, our future is just as spectacular as it is certain though there's much about our life in heaven and new earths that we don't know, Lord. When Jesus returns, we will see him as he is and we will be made new like him. In all his beauty and his love and his perfection, nothing about us will remain broken or sinful or diseased or bonded, sad or selfish. Lord, we long for that day because our great and living hope because of that, we want to live lives that are shaped by your gospel and compelled by your love. And so Lord, continue to free us by your grace and change us by your spirit and liberate us for your purposes. Intensify our love for your holiness, your kingdom, and our neighbors. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.